Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature James Montgomery Boyce. Through his continuing radio ministry, and especially through his writings, Boyce continues not only to teach the scriptures and its great doctrines, but he continues to anchor the commitment of followers and admirers to the inerrancy and sufficiency of God's living word. Rick Phillips writes, In my opinion, the reason for James Boyce's influence and legacy is seldom understood. What was it that drew so wide an audience of pastors and lay people? The answer is that as a Reformed theologian, James Boyce was a Christian first. That is, the issues for which he stood were Christian issues, the inerrancy of Scripture, the gospel in the faith of Jesus, the sin-cleansing power of Christ's blood, and the Christian witness for the salvation of the lost. Today's message is Roads to Glory. turn today to the very last section of Christ's conversation with Peter and also John recorded here in the last chapter of John's Gospel, I'm reminded of a distinction that the Swiss doctor Paul Tournier makes in a number of his writings. He makes a distinction between what he calls the world of things and the world of persons. The world of things is the world of objects, and when we look at objects, we are at first impressed with the great variety and differences that are to be found, from the tiny grain of sand or the rose petal to the planets, whatever it may be. And yet when we examine this world of things more closely, When we get closer to the heart of what these things are really made of and the way in which they function, what we're impressed with is not so much the variety, but the similarity or the sameness. For one thing, many things are virtually identical. The grains of sand, for example, or manufactured objects like frisbees or boxes of Wheaties on the supermarket shelf or whatever it may be. Again, The atoms that compose them are much the same and obey the similar laws and so forth. Look, when you come to the world of persons, in a certain sense, it's entirely different. On the surface, it seems that people are alike. They're about the same height, they look about the same, and so on. But when you get below the surface in terms of personalities, what you're impressed with is how different people are. This is what Tournier is talking about. A bad psychiatrist or psychologist is the one who is too quick to classify people. And a better doctor is the one who's able to explore people's thoughts and personalities in terms of them being individuals. Now I give this series of brief observations as an introduction to this passage because it strikes me in reading it that what we have here is a dramatization of the fact that there are many different kinds of people within the Christian church that God has created this variety and that is absolutely essential. We should recognize it and rejoice in the variety that's to be found there. We see it illustrated in this brief incident that concerns 
the apostles Peter and John. Now, the story starts out as a prophecy concerning Peter. Jesus had just had these words of recommissioning of Peter. He had asked Peter if he loved him, and Peter replied, Yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus responded, Feed my sheep. This was repeated a second time and then a third time. Peter got the point. He knew what the Lord was doing. And then having been recommissioned in this way, reminded of his sin, his threefold denial, being recommissioned by a threefold affirmation of his loyalty to Christ and a threefold commission to feed his sheep, Jesus now goes on to say in a very interesting way that that which Peter had boasted of earlier in the power of the flesh and had been unable to do, he now, by his own grace, would see that Peter did. And so he points out that when Peter was young, he went where he wanted, he did what he wanted, but the time was coming in his old age when he would be taken where he didn't want to go and his arms would be spread out. The reference there is to Peter's death by crucifixion and he would actually, in point of fact, bear a martyr's death in his service to Jesus Christ. You see, that's very significant. But the interesting thing is that the story changes from that point. Our Lord makes this prophecy concerning Peter, but Peter, still much in the power of the flesh, turns around and sees John standing there, perhaps following Christ and Peter, and taking his eyes off Jesus and fastening them on John, his question concerns John's destiny. He says, in effect, Lord, you've told what I'm to do. Let's broaden the prophecy a little. Tell us what John is to do as well. And our Lord's response to Peter was simply this. If I will, that is, if I should desire that John remain until I come, that is, John not die, what business is that of yours? You follow me. In other words, our Lord was simply saying that John is another individual. I have different plans for John, and your task is to get on with the work that I've set before you. Well, when I take that story and begin to think about it, I recognize that in it there are a number of differences, either stated or implied, that indicate, I think, in a very instructive way that we must have that kind of variety within the church and learn to respect it and draw upon it as God works through individuals to accomplish his purposes in this world. Now let me suggest some of those differences that we find here. First of all, there's the differences between youth and age. This is made very clear in reference to Peter alone. Our Lord speaks of the time when Peter was young in contrast to the time when Peter will be old. He says, in your youth, you went where you wanted to. You did what you wanted. In your old age, things are going to be different. Well, you ask then, what are the characteristics of youth? And they're suggested there. I suppose there are a number of characteristics that you could make concerning youth. But certainly our Lord here refers to what we might call the preparation for life, the dreams, the plans that are characteristic of those that are young, as well as what we might also call a kind of independent self-reliance. Peter was a great example of that. Peter was always planning, always dreaming. Peter was so confident of himself, he was sure that nothing, nothing could deter his 
following the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you say, some of those plans are foolish. Yes, and some of those expressions of self-confidence are wrong. Yes, but still our Lord doesn't condemn all those things. And when we look at these aspects of youth, what we have to see is that there is that in youth which is valuable, from which we should learn the ideas, the planning, the encouragement, the dreams, all of those things. And when God gives that to us, as he does within a church, within a Christian fellowship, this is something in which we should rejoice. We should be thankful for those young men, as it says in the Old Testament, who dream dreams and who plan in the strength of their youth to carry them out. You turn to the other side, and here you have old age. And what's said about Peter in his old age? Well, simply, that things are going to happen to him that he didn't want to have happen. And that's true as we get older. One of the things that happens as we grow older is that the dreams of our youth we find we're unable to fulfill. Oh, in part, perhaps, some of the things we dreamed about we can do, but there are problems we come up against that we can't solve. One of the things involved in growing up is recognizing that and coming to grips with it. And what happens as we grow and enter into middle age is simply intensified as we get older and older because the time comes then not only when we're unable to accomplish what we want to accomplish, things happen to us that we would rather not happen. Sickness comes into our life and there's nothing we can do about it. The death of loved ones enters our experience and there's nothing we can do about it. And eventually the time comes when we ourselves die and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, you say, that doesn't sound very encouraging to me. I don't see any advantage in that. Listen, when John himself reflects on what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say to Peter. He refers to this suffering that comes to him in his old age, and John says this very significantly, this spoke he signifying by what death he should what? Glorify God. Now I'm sure that John could have said that Peter, in his youth, in his service, was also glorifying God by what he did, and that's true, whatever you see your hand to do, do all to the glory of God. That's our calling. But notice that John places special emphasis upon the death of Peter and says that it's in this that he glorifies God. Suffering is that peculiar calling of Christians by which more than in any other way we are able to glorify the Father. What glory is it of the Father if we work and are successful in the same way that the world is successful? The world can hardly see the difference except that we're religious people and they're secular people. But it seems to them that we're doing the same thing. And when Christians experience that which is unpleasant, sickness, suffering, death, whatever it may be, and endure those things in a way that testifies to the fact that they're new creatures in Christ, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient for all things, then this truly glorifies him. And the point I'm making is that we need this whole spectrum within the church of Christ. We need the children. We need the young. We need those in middle age. We need the old. If you're sitting here and you're thinking about these things and perhaps in times past have said there's no place 
for me. There's nothing for me to do. There's no witness for me to bear and learn from this first contrast. God has created it that way that each at the particular point in which they find themselves in their lives might be able to contribute that which is unique and valuable to that age. Now secondly, we have here a contrast between what I would call various temperaments. Tim LaHaye has written a book called Four Temperaments. That book is controversial. I don't know whether that is the way in which you would divide up the temperaments or whether if it is, those are the particular four temperaments you would choose. But whatever your reaction to that particular study is, it's quite obvious that there are at least varieties in temperament. And we have that illustrated in the story as well. On the one hand, we have Peter, Peter, the one who is impetuous, the man of action. On the other hand, we have John, who would seem to be not a man of action, but a man of thought. And yet, as we read the story, the Lord Jesus Christ had a role for Peter, and he had a role for John as well. Notice every time we see Peter, Peter is acting, not always wisely, but always first. It was the occasion when our Lord asked the disciples, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they gave the various answers that were circulating in the day. Then he asked them personally, and whom do you say that I am? Peter was the first to speak. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus blessed Peter on that occasion, saying that God himself had revealed it to Peter. Then he went on to speak about his death and suffering, and again Peter spoke first, but this time entirely wrong. He said, oh Lord, that should never happen to you. Why, that's not the plan that I, Peter, have for your ministry. And our Lord had to rebuke him, you see. Not always wisely or right, but always first. Again, we come to the time of our Lord's arrest in Gethsemane. It's Peter who has the sword. It's Peter who draws it and cuts off the heir of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Wrongly, you see, but at least he was the man of action. And we come here to the last chapter of John, and we find the same thing. There they are out in the boat fishing. The Lord is on the shore. John recognizes Jesus. John says it is the Lord. And what happens? Peter jumps into the water and swims to shore because he wants to get there. When he gets there, he really doesn't have much to say, but he acts. And it's hard not to admire him, at least for that activity. And by contrast, here you have John. You know, John is hardly quoted as having said anything in any of the Gospels. And here, in the last chapter, he's the one who sits in the boat, I suppose rowing quietly to get the boat into shore. And you'd look at a man like that and you'd say, well, what possible service can he be in the Church of Jesus Christ? Well, still waters run deep, and in this case it was true of John. He may have been quiet, but he thought, and he heard, and he understood, and consequently when Peter, who was so wrapped up in his own emotional experiences at the time of Christ's discourses in the upper room, so wrapped up, I believe, that he didn't even hear what Christ was saying beyond a certain point, John sat there and listened and absorbed it all. And years later, as the Holy Spirit spoke through him, these things came back to his mind and he was able to record them infallibly and inerrantly in the pages of his gospel. 
People, I think, Christian people have recognized down through the ages that this gospel is the most spiritual of all the gospels, the one which seems to be the most inexhaustible as we study it for what it has to teach us of the Lord. Now, we have different temperaments, those that are shy, those that are bold, those that are introverted, those that are extroverted, those that are activists, those that are not activists. We need them all. And you're to seek the Lord's leading in your life as you personally exercise that gift of character that he's given to you. Thirdly, there is this contrast within the story, the contrast between the various callings that Jesus has for his people. Here is Peter called to what? To martyrdom. Here is John called to what? To a life of faithful waiting for the Lord. Yet each is a calling, though each perhaps is not so attractive in the world's eyes. I think here of a well-known book by Watchman Nee on this passage entitled, What Shall This Man Do? The title being taken from Peter's question. Watchman Nee in that book, first of all, begins by stressing that the calling of God, if it's to be a real calling where you're concerned, must be a calling to a specific work. Nee recognizes in the opening pages that there's a sense in which a general call is given to all God's people. We are called to be his witnesses in this world. We're called to be missionaries. We're called to go into all the world with the gospel, making it known to every creature. But as Nee rightly points out, in any particular case, that must have a particular specific dimension. What is a witness which is just a general witness? Doesn't mean anything. You have to ask questions like to who and how and when. And Nee points out that God calls individuals to specific ways of carrying out that commission. And then he begins to analyze it in terms of these characters. He takes Peter first of all. He says Peter had a specific ministry. What was it? Well, he begins to talk of it in terms of Christ's initial call to Peter to be a fisher of men. In other words, he says Peter's great gift and calling was to evangelism. Now, I'm not sure that that's the best way to describe Peter's calling. Certainly all of the other disciples were called to be fishers of men as well. But Nee is certainly right when he points out that this was Peter's unique ability. Peter was active. Peter was an extrovert. Peter was a speaker. Peter had, I suppose, what we would call charisma. And he stood up and God used that, again, the Holy Spirit speaking through him in those early days of the church to bring thousands on an individual occasion to faith in Jesus Christ. Peter perhaps wasn't deep. He didn't have the understanding that John did. Peter says, in one of his letters toward the end that the Apostle Paul has written things that he, Peter, didn't even understand. Hard things, difficult to be understood, but nevertheless he recognized that Paul was of God and what he said was of God. But Peter had this great gift of evangelism. And oh, we need to value that. We look in our day to those that have the gift of evangelism. We look to people like Billy Graham with his great, powerful ministry throughout the world. We look to organizations like Campus Crusade for Christ, which has literally mobilized thousands of people, thousands upon thousands of people, to get out and actually talk to others about the gospel and to communicate the faith. I don't have any sympathy for those who, because of some superior kind of knowledge, look down on these ministries, saying, well, they don't present it quite right. They don't really have a proper expression of the Calvinistic principles and those four spiritual laws. 
Uh, I have no sympathy for that. God calls people to different works. And here we have this great ministry of evangelism in which we should rejoice. Secondly, he turns to the Apostle Paul and he says, what was Paul's ministry? Well, he gets a clue in the fact that Paul was a tent maker. He uses it as a symbol. He said, what did Paul do? Well, Paul built up. Here you have Peter doing the evangelistic work, but you have Paul with his understanding and organizational ability building up the church. He's the one that tells what elders are to do within the local congregation and the function of deacons and the qualification for them and how the church is to be run and what the doctrines are that are supposed to be prominent. He's the one that writes the letters to the various congregations here and there trying to correct faults, build up, and do the work that Nee describes by that caption, a tent maker. And we have people that are called to that in our day, and we rejoice in that. I spoke of Campus Crusade and its work of evangelism a moment ago. I would put in contrast with that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and its work of upbuilding of Christian people. Now again, as I say that, I don't mean that Crusade does not build up. I don't mean that InterVarsity does not do evangelism. Of course, that's true. One of the most exciting things InterVarsity does is rally people to the missionary enterprise at the Urbana Convention every few years. But the gift of InterVarsity is the development of character in those who are already Christians through small indigenous Bible studies and other leadership opportunities. And we need that. When we look out across the church today, there are literally thousands upon thousands of people in key positions of responsibility who have received their early training and building in the Christian life through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship and its witness throughout this country and throughout the world. Tenth Presbyterian Church, is that kind of a ministry. We sometimes compare the ministry of churches to the work of doctors. We say that there are doctors who bring children into the world. There are churches like that as well, churches that focus on evangelism. Then there are doctors who are pediatricians. They're the ones who take the children and care for them during the days of their infancy and supervise them as they grow up. Well, tenth is more like that. And we have people who come here over the course of the years, perhaps to do study in secular fields at one or more of the universities, and yet during their days of association with Tenth Church, they grow perhaps far more spiritually than they do even in the knowledge of their secular field. This is a God-given ministry, and we rejoice in that. And then finally, Watchman Nee turns to John and he says, what was John's unique ministry? He refers to it as mending nets, correcting things that have gone awry. I don't know if that's an accurate description of John's ministry, but I do know that apparently years went by in which John seemed to be relatively obscure. Certainly we have no references to a great ministry on John's part in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament. John was given the responsibility of caring for Jesus' mother, and it may be that John did that for many, many, many years. And yet the time came toward the end of John's life when the other books of the Bible were written, Paul's letters and the Gospels and other incidental epistles. And John came perhaps the last of all the biblical writers to record these things and as he recorded them to set right some of the things that had gone astray in the church in the meantime. And oh, we need people like that as well. This is where 
professors of theology come in, where the study centers come in, Labrie in Switzerland, Ligonier Valley Study Center, and other ministries. We need that kind of creative grappling with the problems of the churches and the errors of the culture in order that the gospel might be more effectively presented by those who are out in the forefront of the battle grappling with the problems. You see the point I'm making? Variety, God-given, which we must respect. Now let me make this brief conclusion. I've talked about the advantages of each of these contrasts of youth and age, of those who are active, those who are thinkers, those who are evangelists, those who are builders, and so on. Let me point out, quite honestly, that there are also problems connected with each of these ministries and each of these temperaments. Those that are young tend to be foolish and impetuous. Those who are old tend at times to be selfish and perhaps unconcerned about what's happening. They drop out. Those who are activists are often insensitive to others. Those who are thinkers sometimes are lazy. Those who are evangelists can easily be shallow. Those who are builders can be critical of other people's work. Those things are true. And what we need, and I'm sure you understand that, if we're to maximize the advantages and minimize the disadvantages, is to follow that leading which Christ gave, indeed that command, when he said, both to Peter and to John, follow me. You see why that's necessary? If you're following the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, if your eyes are upon him, then he becomes the standard of service and not your particular form of service. You see, if you have your eyes on yourself and your ministry or your gift, whatever it may be, then you inevitably compare other people to yourself. I'm an activist. He's not. Therefore, he's lazy. He's not doing what he should do. I'm a thinker. I have insight. He's shallow. Therefore, he's not doing what he should do. You see how it operates? When that happens, of course, you're in trouble. I was walking along the street the other day following somebody, and instead of watching where I was going, I turned to the side, as Peter did when he was looking into John, and I bumped into a telephone pole. That's what happens when you take your eyes off Jesus. And what we're called to do is follow him in order that he becomes our standard, and therefore, he's the standard for the other person and above all for myself. Now, secondly, when you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you see something about yourself. You see that you are at best an unprofitable servant. If he's the standard, he's not only the standard in a certain objective way for the other fellow and myself, but he's the standard by which I recognize the imperfection of my own discipleship. And therefore, I'm far less ready to say to the other person, be like me, because look what a mess that would be if everybody had all of my imperfections. But rather, I'm inclined to say, as we must, be like Jesus, because he's the one I'm trying to follow as well. Thirdly, when we look to Jesus, and we see him as he is, and all his perfections, and all his strength of character, and all of his glory, we come to depend on him for what we need. We come to depend on him for our direction. We don't know where to go. We don't know how to turn to the right or the left to go on, to slow down. But he does, and as we follow him, we have that direction. We need him as well for our defense. This is a hostile environment in which we find ourselves. We have enemies if we stand for Christ. We're unable for these things. We can't resist 
the powers of Satan manifesting themselves in this world, but Jesus can. And as we follow him, he is our defense. And finally, we recognize that he's also our strength and the source of our determination because as we follow him, we find ourselves determining to glorify him in the way we live. Peter needed to learn that. John needed to learn that. And we need to learn that as well. God grant that it might be so for Jesus' sake. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these examples of variety, even here among the apostles in the early Christian church. We have the same variety. Grant that we might recognize the value that is there and the character and ministry of others, and also by your grace and that character and ministry which has been given to us. And grant that together, by your grace, we might follow Jesus and find him to be the source of our direction, our defense, and our determination. Amen. You've been listening to James Montgomery Boyce. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.